in our series, we are going through the first two chapters of the New Testament. Okay, so there's four documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And these are documents that tell us about the life of Jesus. And two of them tell us about the birth of Jesus, Matthew and Luke. And so we've been going through Matthew chapters one and two. Uh, over the past few weeks, and we've seen this kind of big plan being unveiled, God's great plan that stretches back through time and that reaches out across the planet. It's a plan that's global, but it's also a plan that's incredibly gracious. And, and it's, it's interesting that it began with a genealogy. Do you remember that a few weeks ago? It began with this huge list of names, and I think most of us would scratch our heads and say, Really? If you're going to start the New Testament, surely you want to start it with a bang, not with a genealogy. But that's how it started. And I hope that what we saw there was the historical rootedness and the plan of God that's global but colored in by his grace. And those ideas have kind of weaved their way through these two chapters. And at the end of chapter two, we come to the end of the Christmas story. And from chapter three on, we we jump forward and suddenly Jesus is a grown man doing what Jesus did and ultimately heading towards the cross. And so you'd think that it's going to at least finish with a bang, right? It started with a genealogy. At least it could finish with a little bit of fireworks, but actually it doesn't. It seems to finish a little bit strangely. Now, I hope that by the end of the message, uh, we will say, okay, actually God knew what he was doing when he wrote that. But at first glance, I have to warn you, it's not going to blow your socks off. Okay, this is not an astonishing finish, but I think it actually is. This week I was uh, over in Europe and meeting people from multiple different countries. And you know when you're having conversations with people, uh, they'll ask you, oh, where are you from? England. Oh, whereabouts? And and the further away they are from here, I I wonder if you've noticed this, it, it takes more and more explanation. I mean, we all know, don't we, that Chippenham is the center of the universe, right? I'd love to make a map, you know, with kind of Chippenham in big, bold letters, right, you know, on zero and just everything else relative to Chippenham, because obviously that's true. But actually, when you're talking to somebody and you say you're from Chippenham, if they're English, they'll say, oh, Cheltenham, sort of, but a but, bit, bit lower, a bit different, but like it, you know, <laughs> like, like it's probably a good, good answer. But if they're from outside of England, you say Chippenham, they give you a blank stare. And so I find the best thing to do is just say it's near London. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, they, they know where that is. And I always feel a bit guilty saying it's near London because you've got like London and little Chippenham. And it's kind of relative. It's kind of nothing, isn't it? Now, I love Chippenham. I always tell people I love the town. Uh, we've got enough DIY shops to fix the whole of Wiltshire. And there's some lovely people there. I'm thinking of you primarily, but there's some lovely people there. But, but honestly, Chippenham is kind of nowhere, isn't it? And that's relevant for this passage that we're going to look at. So let me read it to you. We're at the end of Matthew chapter 2. Remember, uh, what we've had so far is Jesus has been born. He's been named. Um, The wise men have come from the east. They've spoken to King Herod. Herod said, ooh, tell me where he is. And so they've gone off and found him and then been warned not to go back to Herod because he's got evil intentions. And so they've disappeared. And uh, Joseph has been warned in a dream Uh, to to get the child away, go to Egypt and get out of the area because Herod wants to kill this threat to his throne. And so Joseph has taken uh, Mary and Jesus and they've slipped away in the night, traveled down to Egypt. 
And that's where we jump into the final few verses of the passage. Verse 19. It's at the bottom of page 808, if you have a church Bible. Bottom of the page on the left. It says, But when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, or Archelaus, how do you say that? Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, so fairly straightforward as far as the story goes. They were in Egypt. The angel came and said, okay, it's safe to return. So they returned. But did you notice it took two dreams to get them to their destination? Now, if you've kind of read the Christmas story at all, you know that Mary and Joseph grew up in Nazareth. That was their hometown. They were only in Bethlehem for the census. And yet it seems like they're coming back to Israel assuming that they're going to go back to Bethlehem. And it takes a second dream to move them on to Galilee and back to Nazareth. I think the reason for that, and I'm I'm speculating slightly, but it sort of makes sense, that if Mary had a reputation for being a a pure young lady, which she would have had in Nazareth, it, it was a rough place. And if she was known for her purity, her godliness, and she got pregnant when she wasn't married, that would have kind of lived with her. Have you noticed that, that, that the, the world around can kind of live by its own standards quite happily, but if you uh, seem to be different and then you turn out to be like the world, they don't let it go, do they? They're kind of like a dog with a bone. They just keep, ah, you think you're better than us. And, and I think that that was the, the problem for Mary and Joseph. I, I think that they would have known going back to Nazareth was tough. Going back to Nazareth meant whispers and comments and gossip and name-calling. It would have meant question marks over every, um, every uh, what's the word I'm looking for? When, whenever Joseph gave an offer to do some work and a price quote, a quotation, they would have doubted him. Why? Because this couple, you know, what happened? Well, and it would have been an awkward place for them to be. And so they actually headed back to Bethlehem. And Bethlehem uh, was a place, first of all, that they didn't, I don't think, arrive in an emergency like in all the films and, you know, gasping for air and banging on the door desperate to give birth. I think they would have been there for a while. And so they would have been there. They would have settled a little bit. They would have had, uh, you know, kind of reconnection with family members maybe, certainly made some friends. And it probably seemed to them like going back to Bethlehem just made sense. Fresh start. No comments, no gossip. Let's go to Bethlehem. But when they got there, they heard about Archelaus. Now, I described Herod a bit last time. He was paranoid. He was crazy. He was a killer. I mean, just a really nasty man. Archelaus was his son. He was basically the same as Herod, only he wasn't so clever politically. (laughs) So he's basically a disaster. When, when Herod had died, he'd had multiple wills, and he kept changing his will. And, and the final will was that Archelaus should get half of the kingdom. 
and then the other half was split into two parts. So Archelaus had this half kingdom to rule over, and he was frightening. And so Joseph, with Mary and Jesus, arrive back in the region of Bethlehem. They, they see the cover of the newspapers on the stands. You know, they hear all the, the tweet, tweeting that's going on about Archelaus or whatever it was. They heard the rumors, and they said, this is frightening. This is, this is worse than it was when Herod was here. And so another dream moved them back to Galilee. And they came back to their hometown of Nazareth, and all ends well. Well, all ends slightly strangely, because when you get to verse 23, it says, He went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, let's think about that for a second. There's been a rhythm of Old Testament prophecies. It's a bit like an Old Testament prophecy festival, this section. Every little bit that you're reading, it kind of tells a story, and it was to fulfill what was written by the prophet Isaiah or the prophet Jeremiah or the prophet whoever, Micah. And we get these quotes from the Old Testament. Now, I mentioned last week that not every prophecy is a direct prediction. Sometimes a prophecy is... is uh, kind of an Old Testament passage with a very clear theme in its context that makes sense even more later. It's not so much predictive as thematic or something. Don't worry about that. But if ever there's a complicated one, it's this one. Because we don't know what the prophecy was. Look again, verse 23. In this Bible, they haven't even put it in quotes. Some Bibles put it in quotes for us, which uh, it really confuses us because we're saying, okay, Spoken by the prophets, right? That he might be called a Nazarene. Now you might think, well, obviously it's in the Old Testament, but we can't find it. So what do we do with it? What is going on? I'll give you a couple of options and, and just kind of show you how, how we work through that. But, but I think actually this is a thrilling way to finish the section. Nazareth was nowhere. Somewhere, but it was a, a nowhere town. It was up in Galilee. Galilee was a region that the Jews despised. It was known as Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations. It's kind of a mixed place with lots of foreigners in it, and, and the Jews didn't like that. And if you were to go up to Galilee, Nazareth was a town with just a poor reputation. It was on one of the caravan routes that, that travelers would have gone from Egypt up to Damascus. It was a few miles away from a town called Sepphoris, which was actually more famous. It was a Roman garrison town. It's where the, the Roman soldiers were stationed. And if you know what soldiers or sailors are like, the towns around tend to suffer for it. And so Nazareth was a place with, um, I was going to say lorry drivers, but I don't want to offend anyone. You know what I mean? People passing through with no accountability. Soldiers on time off. The idea of a virgin in Nazareth was laughable. It was a rough place. It was just a, a nowhere town on the way to somewhere better. And the intriguing thing about this is that God seems to be working out the details. He seems to be orchestrating the story so that Jesus grew up in Nazareth. He could have grown up in the place he was born, Jesus of Bethlehem which immediately would trigger for people, ah, that's where David was from. Little town, but ooh, significant. But Jesus wasn't called Jesus of Bethlehem. He was called Jesus of Nazareth. 
And I think that's a, a fascinating insight when we start to ponder it and to chase it biblically. But what's the prophecy? If there isn't a verse that says, he shall be called a Nazarene, what do we do with that? Well, first of all, I want us to notice that it says, fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets, plural. And so it could be that Matthew's taking different ideas and pulling them together and not actually quoting. He's saying that all the stuff that the prophets were anticipating, this is it. This is the life that they predicted. So what could he be thinking of? Now, I'm, I'm sort of guessing a little bit based on what the scholars have said and looked at the language and so on. Let me give you a couple of options. The word Nazareth is a bit like the word Nazarite. And so some people say, there you go. He, it's like he's a Nazarite. Now, what's a Nazarite? Um, Samson was a Nazarite. It was sort of a special vow that Jews could take where they'd shave their heads and not drink alcohol and be totally devoted to God. And so it could be that, that like some sort of priest, Jesus was a Nazarite, and so he grew up in Nazareth. But there's no connection between Nazarite and Nazareth. It just sounds like it. So it could be that. Matthew's already given us the priest idea earlier on. So it could be saying, this is to fulfill what the prophet spoke, you know, like he's going to be a priest. Could be. Equally, if you, you know, you're familiar with the Hebrew, you might go, hang on a minute, there's another word. There's a word that sounds just like Nazareth, just the first five letters of it, and it means branch. And there are prophecies about a branch, and you think, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Well, in Jeremiah 23, and Jeremiah 33, and again in, oh, where are we, Zechariah 6, it talks about this coming one, this person who, in the dry, dead kind of terrain of Israel, is going to spring forth like a shoot, and that idea becomes like a branch, And so it's sort of an image of the coming Messiah, this root out of dry ground, this branch that that God is going to send. And in the passages that I just mentioned in passing, it's referring to him as a king. And so maybe Matthew is looking at his Old Testament and thinking, yeah, this fulfills Nazarite, branch. It doesn't work in English, but you know what I mean. Same kind of word. Maybe he's looking at Jeremiah and Zechariah and thinking, yeah, that's, that's what it is. There's Isaiah 50, uh, 53, verse 2, where it says like, out of a, uh, like a root out of dry ground. And that's a very similar sounding word in the Old Testament. Talking about his humility and his insignificance and his uh, apparent insignificance, his apparent unimpressiveness. Maybe Matthew's looking at that and saying, yeah, this is who he is. He's a priest and he's a king, but he's insignificant. Well, for me, I'm not, I can't kind of look at those and come to a conclusion that says, right, kick that one out. That's definitely wrong. It's got to be this one. And so I'm left with these kind of various ideas. But there's one thing that does seem to jump off the page to me. And that is that all of the prophecies that are quoted by Matthew in this section are all prophecies to do with places. He talks about Bethlehem. He talks about Egypt. He talks about Rama. And now he talks about Nazareth. And so it seems to me that while there may be some play on word stuff going on there, the the thing that we've definitely got to spot is that the place 
is significant, even though the place wasn't significant. So what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus would be called a Nazarene? You see, for us it's difficult because we don't feel the negative force of that word. And I don't want to give an example because I'm bound to offend somebody. If I say, you know, it's like from such and such. I don't want to do that. But it really was a place with a bad reputation. Nazareth. That's nowhere. That's nothing. In fact, let me just tell you a few examples of where Nazareth is used in the New Testament. At the end of John chapter 1, when Jesus is first connecting with his disciples, uh, was it Philip that came to Nathanael and said to him, Hey, Nathanael, we found a man who, who, who we think is the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathanael's response was, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Immediate disbelief. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see, that sets the tone for the way that Nazareth is used through the New Testament. And the thing that jumps out to me as I'm reading on through the Gospels and Acts and so on is that for Jesus to carry the name the Nazarene actually fits with the whole mission, the whole reason that he came. Jesus was, according to Matthew chapter 1, the son of Abraham. He was the son of David. He's the promised Messiah. He's the priest. He's the king. And when he goes to a place and they have stickers and a a marker pen, what does he write on there? He writes Jesus of Nazareth. And that says something about him. That that makes him, to me, uh, seem incredibly approachable. It makes him seem to me incredibly committed to people from nowhere towns, living nowhere lives, nothing lives. It's like Jesus wasn't some sort of prince in a palace pretending to be one of us. You know, showing you around his, his humble, you know, amazing place with all the expensive stuff hidden from the cameras. No, Jesus came to nowhere, Galilee. And while he could have introduced himself or, or corrected people when they said, you're Jesus of Nazareth, he never did. He never said, no, I'm not Jesus of Nazareth. I'm Jesus the Messiah. I'm Jesus the King. I am Jesus the Anointed One. He never corrected the label. Now, labels were quite common in those days. We have labels, even in our culture. We use last names, which tends to work. But when you've got a group of people, and they've got several people with the same name, you tend to give them some sort of identifier. Have you noticed that? In this church, there's lots of Daves, uh, a couple of Tims, a few Hannahs. And so naturally, when there's a group of people, if you were to say Dave, you're going to get a kind of a quizzical look, like, which Dave do you mean? And so you you tend to, in the Bible, find that people with common names have identifying labels. Simon was the most common name back then. So every time a Simon is mentioned, you will always get this reference to Simon Rocky, Simon Peter, or, or Simon son of something, or Simon the something, job description. And it's the same with Jesus. It was a common name. And so Jesus had to have a nickname to go with Jesus so that we didn't confuse him with all the other Jesuses running around. There could be a physical description. I think that's a little bit more of our culture, you know, like Big Dave or, or you know, something like that. It could be a job description, Plumber Dave or engineer, Systems Engineer Dave. That, that would work for us, wouldn't it? But 
But, but it could be, you know, Dave, dad of Peter. That's my dad. He's called Dave. It could be that kind of thing. And so how, what, what would you choose if you were Jesus? Jesus, son of Joseph. Awkward. All right? Think about it. He actually wasn't. So Jesus, son of Joseph, is not really a label that would have worked. It would have just created uh, comments and gossip and all that kind of stuff. It, there still was that. But that's not the label that he went with. Jesus the carpenter, well, he's a carpenter that doesn't carpent anymore because he's always going around teaching and healing people. So Jesus the retired carpenter, a bit weird. Location, that's the one that stuck. We've met a man who we think could be the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's not the best label, but it was a label that he accepted. It was a label that he never resisted because I think that reflects exactly what he came to do. He came to be with us. Not in a palace, living a uh, sort of cloistered and privileged life. He came and was laid in a manger. He came to the poorest of peasants. He came to nobodies, the uneducated, the unimpressive, the the people who had no influence in society, the people who didn't have a LinkedIn page. He came to normal people. In fact, when Jesus was doing ministry up north, there's various places, I'm not going to fire references too much, but when Jesus was doing ministry up north, he did ministry in Nazareth, and another time he was in a synagogue and he was preaching, And this man shouted out from the back. There was a demon in this man. And this demon declared, you are Jesus of Nazareth. And then made some reference to the son of the eternal one. And Jesus didn't say wrong, correct, or oops, that's embarrassing. Let's go with a different label. Jesus accepted from a demon being called Jesus of Nazareth. He wasn't too keen on being identified in terms of his heavenly address, if you like. But up north, it maybe wasn't so bad because Nazareth was up north. But what about down south? Well, down south, when Jesus was uh, coming to Jericho, there was a blind man named Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus cries out in Mark 10, Jesus of Nazareth, son of David. And Jesus didn't rebuke him for calling him Jesus of Nazareth. He accepted it. When Jesus was arrested, the soldiers came uh, to where he was in, in the, the Garden of Gethsemane praying. And these, this band of soldiers and, and people with clubs and so on, they showed up. And he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And he repeated it. He didn't shy away from the label. He stood up and said, that's me, Jesus of nowhere, Galilee. During the trial. Jesus was inside being uh, quizzed and they were trying to come up with people that could agree on a charge against him. Outside, Peter was in the courtyard and Peter was accused of being one of the disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, betrayed by his accent. When Jesus was crucified, Pilate instructed, you see it in John 19, 19, he instructed that this sign be placed on the cross above him, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. They didn't like that. They didn't like him being called the king of the Jews. They would have had no issue with having Nazareth over his head. When Jesus rose from the dead, when the people came to the tomb on the the, the Easter Sunday morning and they arrive at the tomb in Mark 16, verse 6, we're told that the angel who has come from heaven to announce the good news says, you are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Isn't it amazing? Like Every key moment in his life, He's being identified as Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus ascended and went back into heaven, 
few weeks later, the, the ministry of the apostles, his followers started to take place. And on the famous day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and he, he preached that wonderful message where he said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. But he began the message, Acts 2.22, by saying, Jesus of Nazareth, he identified him. Even risen, ascended, in heaven, glorified, he's still being called Jesus of Nazareth. Acts chapter 3, Peter's preaching again, and he tells them, Jesus of Nazareth. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, they healed this, uh, this person, this lame man in the temple, and he went off kind of leaping and dancing and celebrating, and the apostles got arrested. And, and Peter and John, I think it was, stood there, and they said, it was in the name of Jesus of Nazareth that he was healed. And there's this amazing quote in there where they say, uh, the, the, the leaders are saying, stop preaching in that name. And the apostles say, there is no other name under heaven given to humanity by which we must be saved. It's in the name of Jesus of Nazareth that we can find favor with God, that we can find rescue and deliverance from all that is messed up with us. And then maybe my favorite one of all, Acts 22. Let me just read you a couple of verses here. This is when the Apostle Paul has been arrested. This is years later, and he's looking back on the time when he became a follower of Jesus. And he says this in Acts 22, verse 6, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? Jesus is, is speaking to Paul, right? Saul, Paul, same person. And he's blinded by this light and he cries out, who are you? And Jesus is going to answer. The exalted, enthroned, ascended, glorified king, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the anointed Messiah, the one who's going to rule and reign and put everything right. All of these things he could have said. What does Jesus say? I am Jesus of Nazareth. How cool is that? Jesus himself from heaven introduces himself as Jesus from nowhere. Galilee. They said that God was with Jesus. That it was clear because of his miracles, because of what he did and the life he lived, God was with Jesus. But you know what? When I see that word Nazareth, it reminds me that in Jesus, God was with us. Not near us, not kind of in a palace or, or kind of pretending to be one of us, but coming to the worst place you could imagine. Not the worst part of a big city, because you can always pretend you're from the better part, but like a nowhere town with a terrible reputation. And it was a reputation that he had attached to him for the rest of his ministry, north and south. Uh, at his arrest, in the trial, on the cross, at the resurrection, in his ascension, as he's in heaven, and as he speaks to Paul. He says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, God with us. I think actually that's not a bad way to end the Christmas story. Because even though we can't figure out where that prophecy comes from, somehow it seems to be a fitting summary of what the prophets were describing. That when Jesus comes from their perspective in the future, he's not going to be impressive. He's not going to blow you away with, with, with just how amazingly, stunningly beautiful he is. There's going to be nothing about him naturally that would attract us to him. 
And that's the story of Christianity. That for 2,000 years, people in every tribe and tongue and nation and language have had their lives transformed by somebody who goes by the name that's very common, Jesus. From a place that's even more common, Nazareth. Isn't that amazing? 2,000 years and people have tried to stop it. They've tried to kill it. They've tried to thwart it. They've burned Bibles. They've banned it. They've made it illegal. They've done everything they can to cancel out Christianity and to snuff out the flame. And the message keeps on spreading. And people keep on standing up and say, say, I'm with Jesus of Nazareth. Really? Yeah. Because Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God who came from heaven from all of that privilege into absolute nothingness. He came right down to nowhere for people like you and for people like me. And he went all the way to the worst death imaginable, a hideous, humiliating death for common criminals. And he went there not by accident, but he went there by choice because that was his mission to carry the label Jesus of Nazareth and to hang on a Roman cross Gasping for air, naked, humiliated, desperate. And yet, on purpose, being there for a reason because it was God's plan that his son should come right the way down to us in order to rescue us, in order to die in our place so that instead of us having to face the punishment that we deserve for all the millions of ways that we fall short of God's perfect standard, Jesus said, I'll I'll take care of that. There's no way they can ever fix themselves. There's no way they can ever get themselves out of the mess that humanity is in. I'll take care of that. And Jesus stepped down into this world and he went to the cross and he died for us. Nobody's from nowhere, nowhere Galilee, nowhere Wiltshire. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. It's not that that there's a plan for you to fix yourself and here's a self-improvement plan and if you can just do this and maybe take this tablet or maybe pay this money or maybe do, do this exercise or practice this habit that you can somehow climb out of the mess of, of human life. No, that's not possible. The good news is that we can't do anything but God's done everything. And that he's come all the way down to a nowhere place like Nazareth. Not just for a few months while he was growing up, not just to kind of go through the school of hard knocks so that he could be picked on on the streets because of what his parents had done, but to carry that label for the rest of his life and for the rest of eternity. I wonder if we think about that, that Christmas wasn't just a temporary arrangement. It wasn't that God the Son came and became one of us for a 33-year mission, but actually he came and became one of us, fully God, fully human, fully one forever. I love that. I love the fact that right now, with all of the confusion, all of the doubts, all of the struggles, all of the issues that we have, the things that we don't show, the things that we don't share, I love the fact that there is a human in heaven who's on our side, and that human is Jesus. I love the fact that because Jesus is in heaven, fully human, it means that he fully understands. He knows our struggles. He knows the difficulties. And the Bible tells us that right now he's speaking to the Father on our behalf. That's amazing. And we, no one can ever say, yeah, but Jesus, you don't know what I've gone through. 
You were privileged. You came from heaven, but I grew up in, or I went to, or this happened to me. Because Jesus could say with all the the brokenness and the the humility that comes from a tough life, he could say, actually, I, I know what you've gone through. I know what you've experienced. I've experienced something similar. And I want you to know that God loves you. And that's the message of Christmas. God loves you. He loves you enough to send his son forever to be one of us so that we could be forever one with him.